I wonder if you've ever, like me, been someone that's been spending so much time in the church over the years that sadly something has happened unintentionally or, you know, very intentionally. You've suffered from Easter fatigue. Uh, you know that you get up on Easter morning and you're going to go up and show up at church and likely there'll be some people there that you don't see but once or twice a year. Uh, there'll be some things going on. You'll have a big dinner. And that's about the extent of it. But I wonder if we got that text message this morning on all sorts of various different devices, if we would be as excited about the resurrection of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. The grave is empty. My God is not dead. He's alive. That is a message of great joy and great hope for the time we find ourselves in today. And it's the message that Allison just read that Paul was inviting people to wrestle with. What does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? And so this morning, I want to look a little bit at why it matters. Did it happen? If so, what does that mean for us some 2,000 years later? How does that shape how we live? And how should it shape how the world sees us today. Because Easter fatigue or Jesus fatigue is a real thing. I don't think you'll find it in a psychological textbook. But I've met a lot of Christians and I've been one in the past where I'll show up at church or I'll know the right answers to the right questions. Usually it's Jesus. But then my life looks like something completely different. Paul had the audacity to say, go ahead and take a look at my life. I know what I'm talking about. And I want to explain to you, he says, why the resurrection is so vitally important. So that's what we're going to look at today. Maybe. Except for we've lost my slides. That's okay. If you've got your notes with you, it's this little sheet of paper. We're going to follow along after those. And I want to look first at the idea of could it really have happened? Why would people even believe that Jesus rose from the dead? So what Paul wants to do is right away, right in 1 Corinthians 15, he's coming to the culmination of all sorts of things. He's been trying to help the church in Corinth and really all the churches understand who they are together. The fact that the church is supposed to be a place where we honor and remember what the Lord has done. What's the point if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead? If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, why bother with anything else? And so you need to understand when Paul was writing this. So you think back and you look in your Bibles and and some of your Bibles, if you've got a study Bible, it might tell you that it was written roughly 15 to 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to people that one way or another were hearing about Jesus from tangible sources. And so as he begins, he challenges the readers and listeners of his letter to question the very evidence of the resurrection. 
Because if you don't believe in the resurrection, he's saying, nothing else matters. If you don't wrestle with the evidence, don't bother going any further. Don't bother calling yourself a Christian. If you can't get to the heart of, did Jesus rise from the dead victoriously? If you don't arrive at that point, you are not a Christian, you are a moralist. Do you know what a moralist is? A person that does really, or works really hard to make right choices, or at least have people see them making right choices. Back then, Jesus called them Pharisees and Sadducees. And Paul is saying, it's different than that. Let's consider the very evidence of who Jesus is. First, he asks us to consider the question of evidence by looking at the very fact that Jesus was crucified. Both Biblical texts and extra-biblical texts will point to the fact that a man named Jesus was hung on a cross and crucified along with two other men. We know from extra-biblical texts, when I say extra-biblical, what that means is not the Bible. Okay? I'm not going to go into all of them. There's many. But they indicated time and again that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified. And that in doing so, they even put a sign over his head that he was to be, or he was king of the Jews. And and so most people in that time wouldn't have argued that this guy, Jesus, whether he was a prophet, a messiah, or C.S. Lewis says, a lord, liar, or lunatic, you wouldn't have found argument back then that he was crucified. Which led it to believe that, okay, well then we know this Jesus lived, because to be killed, you have to first be alive. You with me so far? Good. This is Easter. One day a year, I want you to be excited. So I'm going to try really hard and I'm going to talk really loudly because we should be excited that Jesus is risen. There. Now we're getting it. Good. I'm not going to get too excited because I want you to. But the first thing he says, okay, Jesus was crucified. Accounts show time and again, even 2,000 years ago, we've still got good records that that happened. Next, we know that a crucified person would have been buried. That, again, that wasn't in question. He was pulled off. They didn't even have to break his legs, which meant that the prophecies in the Old Testament that not a bone would be broken were true. The prophetic knowledge of God The foreknowledge of God, the sovereign knowledge of God throughout the scriptures were coming together in this one event that happened over three days. And Paul, 15 to 20 years later, is saying, don't you get what this means? He's saying, so if he was crucified, he was buried. This guy Joseph took care of that for us. And again, you've got texts to support that. You've got places where you can go visit that tomb or what they expect to be that tomb. Again, The tomb, not in question, Paul is saying. There's enough accounts all around him, even in Corinth, a Gentile town, that indicated, okay, Jesus was crucified. That's what happened at Golgotha on Friday. That he was buried in the tomb donated by Joseph. We know that. So this is then where we get next that when Mary, when Peter, when John arrived at the tomb, what did they find? 
Nothing. Well, they didn't. They found two angels sitting there saying, how you doing? What are you looking and, and John says one of them dared ask, what, who are you looking for? Well, that's a dumb question. We already know whose tomb it is. And another gospel account says, he is not here. The one you are looking for is risen. He is alive. These were eyewitness accounts that had been passed on. This guy, John, that wrote this gospel years later was remembering what he himself saw and that he was a faster runner than his friend Peter. These are important details because they stuck out. An eyewitness account will put things into the story that no one else could because they weren't there. They could make up stories and add stuff, but only John, who likes to refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, would say, I got there first. (laughs) But Peter was the one that ran straight in. Blame him for desecrating a tomb. But once Peter checked it out, then I went in and the tomb was empty. The account of John the Apostle, the account of the disciples that then saw Jesus were spreading around. And what does Paul tell us next? Not only was the tomb empty, but there were eyewitnesses. Okay, so Jesus hung out with these now 11 guys. Uh, Judas, no more a part of the picture. And so let's say if, if we're putting our cynical lenses on We're going to discount the testimony because they could have been planning all along. And this was something the Romans were afraid of in the first place. Which, by the way, to get back to the tomb being empty, you've got to ask that big elephant in the room question. How could Mary roll the stone away herself or even two other guys? And how could they have gotten by Roman well-trained centurion guards? So you have to ask that. It's As these accounts come out, how could any number of these things, we know the guards were put there on purpose to prevent just such this thing from happening. The tomb was empty and it went beyond human logic how it could have happened because those guards were well-trained and ready for a fight. There was no fighting Jesus because he was victorious over death. Well, how do we know? Well, if you find yourself in a court of law today, you can be convicted if one man saw the offense you committed, correct? So if I go up and I decide to run up and randomly, and this actually, I had a youth pastor friend that this happened to him once. He was walking down the street in Causeway Bay and a young kid, probably around 12 years old, just ran up to him, gave him a swift kick in the leg and ran off. Clearly, someone had dared him to do it. But nonetheless, my friend had seen that happen. So had the person standing next to him. And they sort of just looked there like, what just happened? So if that young man was brought back into court and the man that was kicked was asked the question, yeah, I was kicked. Well, they would say, okay, well, can anybody corroborate your story? And he would say, well, I was in Causeway Bay. Surely people heard or saw what was happening. I just got kicked. Well, think about this, that when Jesus took on this physical form again, when he was rising, walking, flesh and bone, he flesh and bone, he looked to Thomas and he said, "Touch me. Look at the holes in my hand." He ate with them. He fed the disciples, and he appeared to how many? What do the scriptures say? Five hundred. 
Now, if this sermon were to go on in posterity for any reason, because it'll be on the internet by Tuesday uh, via the podcast, there's roughly 200 of you in this room right now. That would be pretty good reckon, or pretty good reckoning that I was indeed up here telling you about Jesus, right? You might hear different things depending on where you're from in the world. My language and my illustrations may sound differently. So get this, your account of what I said may be slightly different from one another. What? You may hear different things and highlight different things of that story based on the lenses with which you see the world. But, but, yeah, we don't all see the world and think about it in the same way, do we? No? You don't believe me? Do you and your spouse interact in the same exact way? Do you and your best friends interact in the same way? No. We interpret the world around us through different lenses. But if I have all of you to go up and on my behalf tell one other person Mike preached on Sunday, he worked that one day a week, the message might spread. Right? Think about this. 500 saw the very person of Jesus Christ. 500 crammed in and would try to touch him, would see him, would hear him, would feel his breath as he walked among them. Are they going to keep that to themselves? No. And the great thing is, Paul is like, you guys are questioning whether Jesus rose from the dead. So don't take my word for it. I, the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, Paul has known to call himself. He says, go ask him yourself. It's roughly 16 to 18 years ago. I just told you a good number of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. You go ask them what they saw. Don't take my word for it. Isn't it amazing that Christianity was spreading throughout the region because people were telling not what they'd heard, but what they had seen and heard. And it was spreading And the third thing that was happening is the miracle of the resurrection was being told to the world. Lives were being changed. Why does baptism excite me so much? Because baptism is a sign that not only have we prayed the sinner's prayer, but we are sold out for Jesus Christ. We're not perfect but we are going to bask in the grace of God and live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit that's going to empower, he's going to empower us to go into the world and live differently. And that's what happened. Lives were changed and they spread out. And as we see, as we read the book of Acts, it spread. And as Paul went to different places and told about what he had seen and heard, he includes himself in there. He says, I'm working harder than anybody. First, I worked harder than anybody to tell you he's fake. Now I'm working harder than anybody because I've seen and I've heard from the risen Lord. I understand what it all means. Now I'm doing more than anybody. I'm going, working tirelessly to make sure the world knows he is alive. And he is changing lives, of which Paul is the greatest example. A murderer, a persecutor of Christians, is now their greatest advocate. Isn't that amazing? 
It's not that Paul just saw something and thought, oh, I should write about this and make up a story that logically can make sense and fits into what I think the world should look like. He says, no. He writes in Philippians that nothing else matters but knowing Jesus Christ. Lives are being changed. And so when you look at evidence, you have to look at, well, how long would a story stand up? How long would an account hold water? Think about it like this. When revolutions happen, or or maybe that's a strong word, when big world-changing events happen, they gain a lot of steam initially. In the world we live in now, they gain a lot of action on Twitter and on Facebook and and on the digital networks of news that we find ourselves, and you read read about them in all different worlds, right? Until the next big event. Not so long ago in Hong Kong, we were the center of the world for a few days. Do you remember this? Central, really, Admiralty was being occupied. You remember that? And at first, also, you know, you hear so many different accounts. I'm not going to give a number. But there were a lot of people in one area seeking one goal, we, we, we think. And regardless of which side you fell on in that that demonstration, the world stopped and noticed and took notice that something was happening in Hong Kong. You with me? Now, move on a week. Were the numbers as big that next week? No, they were a bit smaller. Tents were up, it was all exciting, but the numbers were a little bit smaller. Move on two weeks, move on a month, and what kept happening? The numbers dwindled, the excitement faded, and life went back to normal, right? Now, obviously, there were some things that happened and some repercussions in how Hong Kong is looked at from our neighbors to the north and how we govern ourselves and different things like that. But at the end of the day, by and large... This amazing thing that made all the world's newspapers for a little while is now forgotten. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And people are still standing boldly up and saying, He changed my life. You can't fake that. That's why we're called to be a living testimony. That's why we're called to tell the story of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Our lives tell the story that he is alive. And if we don't get that the evidence points to that, if we don't get that Jesus is alive, we're worshiping a false God and we're just trying to earn our salvation. And we've missed it. So you have to start by questioning the evidence. And that's what Paul started with. He said, take a look. Was Jesus crucified? Yes. Was he buried? Yes. Was the tomb empty? Yes. Was that supposed to be possible? No. Did he then show up in front of a few? Yes. Did he then show up in front of a few more? Yes. Did he eat with them? Impossible if he's dead, right? Dead people don't eat unless I've missed something. And Paul is, I mean, he's just breaking it down step by step. Did he then show up in front of 500? Yes. 
if he showed up in 500, might this potentially be true? If 500 eyewitnesses went and told their families and their families told more and more and it gained steam and out of that came the church that we live in today, shouldn't it be a message that transforms hearts and lives? That Jesus is alive. Sin and death have been conquered once for all and we get to tell that story, not just on Easter Sunday, but on every day. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. And as you get down to verse 13, listen to what he says. He says, he he questions our logic again. And he said, well, verse 12 says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, I am preaching right now, Christ has been raised from the dead. I am saying, I expect you to look at the evidence, go do it on your own, go look at biblical and extra biblical, question as best you can, with the evidence given, look at dates, look at texts, look at scrolls, look at the writings, look at the accounts of who was there and see if you can come to a different conclusion without skewing it toward what you want to believe. If you can look at it objectively, you'll always end up back at, yeah, he had to have been raised from the dead. It's the only conclusion and explanation that works when you look at all of the evidence around it. But Paul says, okay, if that is being preached... How can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? How is that possible? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So what was going on? Uh, Because Paul is tying this into some of what we've been talking about in the weeks past. Paul is tying this into the fact that Christ will return and raise us victoriously, giving us new bodies. We will be resurrected and we will walk with physical bodies. While our souls are with Jesus, if we've passed on right now, if you were a Christian, he will give us new bodies and raise us victoriously and usher in a new kingdom. And we look forward to that. But if that's not going to happen, then Paul's saying, well, then Jesus didn't rise either because he was dead too. So if you're saying they don't rise from the dead, then how can you say Jesus rose from the dead? And if that's the case... If there is no resurrection, Jesus wasn't raised. (sighs) Well, if that's the case, everything stopped at the cross. So he suffered for our sins. But that would, the logical conclusion, mean that death won. Because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he did. He's not alive. And as Paul next says in verse 14, we are wasting our time. So I can finish now and you guys go get brunch. But that's the thing. Paul says, keep thinking about your world view. If we're saying there's no resurrection from the dead, if we're saying that Jesus wasn't raised, we're wasting our time. And Paul is not. I mean, read anything he's written. The man is brilliant. He has put tremendous thought. He has used all of the intellect God has given him to reason and understand just what has happened. And then he's doing his very best, ordained by God, to pass this information on to those around him. And he's saying, we're not going to waste our time because if Jesus wasn't raised, we are still condemned. What does that mean? Well, let's think about it. It means 
what we're told in Romans. Again, Paul's writings, his systematic theology that you find in the book of Romans, uh, which was his letter to the Jewish community in Rome, he says, for the wages of sin is death. And that's where you would have to stop if Jesus is not raised from the dead. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment of sin. If you go to work tomorrow, you expect to get paid, correct? Most of you are on holiday tomorrow, so don't go to work. And students, you're on holiday all week. Enjoy it. But the wages of sin, the payment of sin, is death. In another verse, he says, and then, well, who has sinned? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when you put those two statements together, written by Paul, Understanding Theology 101, it says that our sin will kill us. Not just for now, but for eternity. Our sin makes it impossible for us to rescue ourselves. Our sin makes it impossible for me to earn my way to salvation. Our sin makes it impossible for you to be good enough. One of the biggest pressures people in Hong Kong face is living up to someone's expectations for them. Whether it's your boss, whether it's your parents, whether it's your children, whether it's your friends, you're constantly in a place where you're trying to live up to someone ex- someone's expectations. And how does that work? It might work okay for a time, but eventually we disappoint each other, don't we? We fall short. We sin. And if we see the world through that lens of there's no resurrection, then not only are we wasting our time, but our sin is condemning us. Our sin is killing us. Our sin has set a path before us that leads to hell. And Paul is saying there is no other way but through the work of Jesus Christ. This worldview, this perspective changes in the world we've lived in today. So I brought a way to look at it. I like sunglasses. Uh, I like them a lot, and my wife does not like that I like them because I keep spending money on more. But depending on how I see the world, I would have a different shade of lens on. For instance, if I am a good Buddhist, I've got the smallest ones here because... Proper Buddhism says that eventually I'm going to end up in a state of nothingness, right? This wonderful nirvana of emptiness and nothingness. Doesn't that sound wonderful? No, but everything in my life then is going to see the world through this lens of nothingness, an enlightenment that means there is no meaning. Yeah, I don't really want that. So I'm going to take those ones off. And by the way, I don't look very good in these, I'm told so I don't wear them very much. Well, then you might get into Hinduism. Okay, so we pull out Hinduism. Hinduism is a little more all-encompassing because we want to be reincarnated as something better. And to get reincarnated as something better, we've got to live really well in this life and do the right things to try to jump out of the, the level we're at now, right? Otherwise, you're going to get reincarnated as a dung beetle, and we don't want that. 
And so we see the world through trying to make sure that our path to reincarnation is a good one, that our next life, if this life stinks, that karma is going to make it possible for the next life to be better. And so everything in our life then is measuring up to karma. Okay? So that's how we're seeing the world. Again, just as we're striving for nothingness and earning that goal of enlightened emptiness, now we're striving to earn a better next life, hoping that, well, if this one doesn't work out, the next one will, and on and on it goes, always trying to do better on our own. Well, then, maybe you are a Muslim, and you put the lenses on, and you consider the question of, how do I prove to Allah that my love and my deeds for him are enough that he gives me a reward? Because that's ultimately at the heart of Islam, is that we have to earn, we have to show our allegiance to Allah in such a way that he rewards us. Now, obviously, there's a lot more written in the Quran than what I'm going through in World Religions 101 in three minutes or less. But the basic principle is you've got to show Allah you're worthy of his heaven. And it's all about us getting to him. It's all about us earning that. And then there's one more that's the most popular one in the the culture we find ourselves today. And my favorite sunglasses. (laughs) Everything's great. Everybody can believe whatever they want as long as we don't bother anybody else. It'll all work out in the end as long as I keep building the best life for me right now, which obviously is these sweet sunglasses. And we look the way we want and we're just happy and we are fulfilled because it's all about me. And I'm not going to offend you and you're not going to offend me and we're certainly not going to talk about absolutes. But the problem is with that is we're trying so hard. These are really dark, so I can't see anything. The problem is with that is when we look at the world around us, we see the world revolves around us. And as you follow that logic to its logical conclusion, that is very depressing because we are not great. We don't have it all figured out. If Mike Rose is the center of the universe, oh, we are in trouble. Because there is so much I have left to learn. There's so much I get wrong. And there is so much I don't understand. That why would I even want to be God of my own life when I can't figure out my daughter's fifth grade math? But yet that's what we have done. We have looked at the world through these different lenses and we've said we've got to adopt them all and God will still love us. Now, God loves his creation with an unending, undying, and just unfathomable love. But he also loves us with an absolute love that says there is only one way to have access to a relationship with him. And that is through the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. 
I'm getting older. I did not say I'm getting old. I said I'm spending more time in front of a computer screen, which meant that I had to put these on. And when I look at the words in front of me from about here, I can see them. And it's wonderful. And the lens with which I can see the world is easier. Do I like wearing glasses? No, I hate it. It's so weird for me because I can't get used to it because I keep taking them off. I won't commit. Hmm. Isn't that how some of us view our Christian life? Jesus, I'm going to love you when church is good. I'm going to love you when it works for me. When people treat me the way a Christian should treat me, when people do the right Christian things, I am going to love you and be all about Jesus. But when things go sideways, put on another pair of sunglasses or just leave them all off and walk blind, which is also what happens. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus came and he said, whether you believe in me or not, I am the only way to God. I am the right way, and I came to give you life that's the life you didn't even know you were dreaming of. And I know I've got the life in store for you that you didn't even know you're dreaming of because I made you. And I hung the stars in the sky. And I looked down on your broken, sinful self. And I obeyed my Father who is in heaven. And I considered it pure joy to go pay the penalty for your sins. But I didn't just die. I rose again. I killed, I defeated, I destroyed death. So that while you still walk this earth and while you still walk this sinful place, you can know that whatever you're facing is not the end of the story. Yesterday afternoon, I got a text from my sister. Or was it yesterday after? I can't remember. And it said that one of our most fervent prayer supporters, you know, pastors need prayer too, um, in, our, in our parents' church in Dover, Ohio, She's been rushed to the, in, this part of, in that part of America, the best medical center they could find because they found more tumors and it has spread to her brain. And so now they've moved in to making her comfortable. Now I've got to tell you about Sherry because she is the most joyful person you'll ever meet. She has loved the Lord. She has smiled through numerous facial reconstructions as they've torn more and more and more of the disease out of her. And each step of the way, she has faced the cancer and faced the disease and faced the discouragement and pointed back to the glory of God. She's never said, oh, I'm so happy I'm facing this. But she has never once that I've heard complained. Now, I'm sure she's let people know it hurts and it's difficult and she doesn't understand. But I have heard her, when I got to hug her last summer, I have heard her say, this isn't my real body. This isn't all there is. There's so much more to life. She said, Mike, I'm not worried. 
We face the loss of loved ones. We face the loss of financial security. We face uncertain medical diagnosis. We face uncertain times. We face an America that might have a guy as... (sighs) How do I finish that sentence? You get... I'm not gonna. It doesn't matter. All of this could be very heavily weighing upon us. And it becomes a question of hope. Where are we placing our hope? Because if Jesus hasn't risen, I'm sorry, but we are sunk. And by the way, you've been donating plenty of money to a church that's wasting your time. Go to Macau and gamble. Your chances would be better. But death, verse 55, has lost its power. You know, the older I get means the older loved ones that were my mentors and friends and trusted confidence, they get too. And some of them have faced tremendous trials. Uh, And as they faced it, I've realized that for those in Christ, they don't have to fear death anymore. That their sins have been paid for, atoned for. Jesus paid the price and it's, they've been justified. Do you know what justified means? It means just as if I'd never sinned. Go tell that to your friends that bring up your sin every time they get in an argument with you. It's just as if I'd never sinned. The Bible tells us that our sins are thrown to the ocean floor to be remembered no more. Why? Because Jesus Christ conquered death once for all when that tomb was empty and he was walking around with his friends victorious over death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone. Those in Christ have a new identity, just as Carlos has his identity. He is a child of the Most High God. And he wanted the world to know that. So we are in Christ. And our hope is that death is not the end of the story. This body of mine that only works some of the time is going to be healed for all eternity. So I'm not working for the next 30 years. I'm working for eternity for the next 10 million. Isn't that amazing? and exciting. And as I tell you before, I've been told not to use this one, so I'm going to use another. I'm going to be more muscular. And I'm looking forward to it because I'm kind of little, except in one area. That's not all that Paul reminds us. He also reminds us that if Christ has been raised, we are victorious. I don't know what you face, but I know I live in a world where people aren't just and fair to each other both inside and outside the church. I know we live in a world where people receive medical diagnoses that don't make sense and are hard to wrestle with and hard to understand. And I will go to those hospital beds time and again and I will look at people's eyes as they suffer and I'll say, I don't understand, but I do know it is the Lord whose rod and staff comfort me. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have no need to fear evil because death is dead and our king is alive. And because he is alive, our sins have been thrown into the ocean to be remembered no more. And even better, we 
have been made the righteousness of God. You realize that? You're righteous if you've called on the name of Jesus Christ, if you've believed on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've confessed with your mouth and believed with your heart that Christ is Lord, you will be... Okay, the answer is saved. And I want you to say it like you mean it. If we confess with our mouth and believe with our hearts we, that Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Shouldn't that change how we live? Shouldn't that then be the evidence our world is desperately needing to see? Yes. Shouldn't that be more important than what kind of phones or shoes or clothes we wear? Yes. Get lost on that one because there's a new iPhone that just came out. But that's not all. There's more to the story. And this is great. The story keeps growing. Jesus is not dead. Therefore, his story continues. And so does ours. And we have a living hope. Our hope is not dead. Our hope is not invisible. Our hope is an eternal inheritance that will never spoil or fade. That's what Peter was reminding the early church. Our inheritance is the very relationship with God through Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What does Peter say in its full context? Well, let me read it for you because I don't want you to miss the depth of Peter's words. And Peter just doesn't even stop. He just gets right into it in verse 3 of his letter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us, just as was evident or was illustrated in baptism, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Go think about the power of those verses for just a minute and think about the depth. Maybe you're thinking at this point, what's my inheritance? And you've got parents that are aging. My dad, when I was growing up, uh, I used to walk into his office. He's a, he's a pastor. And my dad had a ton of books. And my mom would walk in there with me and she'd be like, well, there's your inheritance. Well, when my dad's role changed and he became an associate pastor, he gave away all his books and I didn't get any of them. So there went my inheritance. No, that's not true. He gave me three. But the point is, when we hope in an inheritance that's of this world, we've missed it. Our message was wrong all along. Jesus Christ is alive. He has risen victoriously over death and that has to change how we live if we believe it to be true because we've been justified. Our sins have been atoned for. He paid the price. It was him that made propitiation for our sins. I'm using all these big words to make sure you understand that your sins are not counted against you in Christ because he did it for you. And that changes everything. Jesus Christ is alive. He is our hope. We look at our world and we can say it's broken, but he's coming back. It's broken, but he has risen victoriously from the dead. So what do we do with Easter in 2016? 
Let me ask you a couple of questions and then we finish. If this is new to you, if you've never thought about has Jesus really risen from the dead, if any of this could be true, I invite you to seek it out. Don't take Mike's word for it. I've just given you an overview. Go seek it out. Go read other people. But most importantly, read God's word. Read the Bible. Even if you've never once prayed in your life, pray once. Just say, God, I want to see you. And then begin to investigate and see what he might show you. I've seen it time and again where the Lord opens our eyes and it's as if he was saying, which is true, I was here all along. And when you come to that place, you're invited to admit that we need rescued by God, that I cannot earn my way to salvation, to enlightenment, to uh, reincarnation, to whatever you're thinking it might be called. I need help. And in so doing, we come to the realization that we talked about last week, that our sins are ever before us. And we ask forgiveness for those. And you know how our sins can be forgiven? Through the wonderful sacrifice of our risen Lord and Savior who conquered sin and death once for all. Amen. And we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to purify us our sins. Isn't that great? And then we trust that Jesus is the one that rescues us. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. He did it for us. And then if you've accepted that and if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you follow him. You are his disciple and you do what he says out of love for him because he did what he said or what he was told out of love for his father. So shouldn't we go and do likewise? And for us, the church, it's that last point that I want to finish with. We're called the follow in faith. If he indeed is risen, if he indeed is our hope and our salvation and our rescue, are we living that his way is the best way to live? If we were one of those 500, would people know that he's alive? Let me ask it again. If we were one of those 500, would we be WhatsApping, vibering, messaging, and every other form of communication that I haven't caught up with to make sure everybody knew he is alive and would our lives tell his story? I pray that every moment of our days, our lives tell the story of our risen Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you indeed are a mighty God, that you gave your one and only Son who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might have and be the righteousness of yours, that we've been justified, that we've been bought with a price, and that we've been invited into an eternal relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, help us to live that truth out with great hope, knowing that because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know my God is able to do far more than we've even yet seen. In your name I pray.